Once again, thank you so much for being here. And I know I say that every Sunday morning, but I mean it every Sunday morning. That's just not a perfunctory statement that I say that is good for you to hear and you need to hear it. And I really mean that. I love seeing you in this class. Because what I hope is that as we share the Word of God, as we, by the Spirit's leading and anointing, hopefully open the Word of God, as He does that through us, that your hearts and minds are being filled with the knowledge of the Word of God. And that is transforming you. And the Holy Spirit has given you a much deeper motivation and empowerment to be the children of God for His purpose. And it is a singularly significant thing, a truth, to see God's Word as a comprehensive revelation from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation 22. And I don't know what anyone takes out of a class or from a sermon, but I hope you do get this, that what we have in this volume called the Bible is a revelation of God the Father's purpose as purchased through the Son and revealed by the Spirit. Amen? That's what we see here. And so in any area of the Bible, wherever it is that you are reading, whatever it is that you are reading, Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. Hopefully you are seeing it within the context of the entire revelation. Amen? And hopefully it's pulling together. The Holy Spirit is pulling together this word of God. Father, thank you so much <clears throat> for this revelation. Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're continuing our study of the individual roles within the one being of God as we look at the role of the Son. And as we do that, let's remember this, and always I'm going to say this, that in the one being of God, remember Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, the Lord our God, Yahweh is one. Remembering what that word one means. It means the one and only. There is no other God besides this God. And not only does the word mean a singularity, but it also means a unity. That there are more than one persons within the one being. And each person and these three persons collectively are absolutely equal in every respect of their nature and of their character. Absolutely equal in every respect of their nature and of their character. None, neither, none of the one of the three. None of the three better, greater than, or whatever than the others. And that each person and all collectively share the very same substance and nature, power, attributes, understanding, revelation, purpose. And so what distinguishes the three persons of the Trinity <clears throat> is not their intrinsic nature or the intrinsic character of each, but how these three relate in this loving community of fellowship. And they relate through distinctive roles. Each one of them 
exercising a particular role or, if you would, activity or, if you would, leadership in a particular way. But none of them ever exercising his role or his activity unilaterally. Do you know what I mean by that? By himself. So that within the role of any of the three, the other two are there allowing the role of the one to take the leadership so that in everything that God does through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons are always continuously and simultaneously involved. Do we see that? Why do I emphasize this? Well, because the Bible does, but the reason for us personally is that as God is in himself, this divine heavenly community, so also are we as his image-bearing church to be within the community of this church, the community of the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. And so this morning we talk about the role of the son. <clears throat> this means, remember, that as is true of the father, and as true of the Holy Spirit, the Son is fully God within himself, but not by himself. Now, these are mind-bending understandings. So that means that the Son is simultaneously equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And we could say that of the Father and of the Spirit. And so with this truth in view, with that background in view, let's this morning... Just look at the role of the Son within the community of the one being of God. So let's look at that. The, the Son's role can be described as a loving, respectful submission. A loving, respectful submission. <clears throat> I include all three words, not that they are mutually exclusive or distinct from one another, but these three words are companion words. They all three go together like pieces of a puzzle to form the whole. But if I don't say it this way, then what's going to happen is typically of us as human beings, we separate the word love from the word respect, from the word submission or follow or obey. When in actuality, because of who God is, these three words form the basis of the way God relates and the way the character of God is manifested. And so without one of these three, the other two fall apart. And so you can't have one without the others. You can't have two without all three. And so what is the role of the son? The role of the son is, what did I say? What? What was it? You can say it to me. Loving, respectful, submission or following or obedience, submission, obedience. Now we're going to get into more of that in a couple of weeks as I kind of try to conclude all this within the, uh, not next week, the role of the spirit, but the week after that. The relationship between the father and son is, is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 11.3. And it's one of those very, very significant statements that 
statements that Paul makes that we skip over and we fail to see. Paul is talking about, if you would, and I'm going to call it this way, the pecking order. I don't like the term, but I think it communicates what is happening. The truth, the pecking order. The husband is the head of the wife. Remember? Why? Because Christ is head of the church. God is the head of Christ. Remember that. And so the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, lays out the way that we are to be imaging our God. That the relationship between the husband and wife specifically, but in the larger context, the way we relate to the church, and hopefully we'll have some time to get into that, is to exemplify in image the way the father and the son relate. And how is that? The father is the leader, as we looked at last week. Remember, the authoritative source. And the son is the submitted son coming under the leadership of the father. Remembering that the word father and the word son are not biological terms having nothing to do with someone begetting in a physical way that, oh, there was a time when the son was not. That's heresy. It's not a biological term, but it is a relational term that within the function or the fellowship of God, the way the persons of God relate to one another, the father relates to the son as father, the son relates to the father as son, and the spirit relates to the father and son as the spirit who is the helper of what the purpose of God is carried out by the son and applied by the spirit. And so the word here, the head of Christ is God. The Greek word for head is kephala, which means authority or source. And you can put the two together, the authoritative source. This means that the father is the authoritative source to whom the son submits. Now the question essentially of the revelation of the son's submission in leadership. <whistles> let me start that all over again. This quintessential revelation of the way the son submits to the father. We see it in Philippians chapter 2. Remember in verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. Though the son, he, the son, though the son was in the form of God, in other words, he was equal with God of the same nature and equality and of substance, etc., of God. We now understand what that means in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, when he became the incarnate son, and even as we'll see in a moment, the eternal son, the son who is equal with the father did not proclaim his equality or try to say, I'm the same, I'm the same, I'm equal with God, look at me too, look at me too. What about me? What about me? But he made himself nothing and taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so... This is the quintessential, clearest, and most dazzling revelation of the Son's eternal, loving, respectful submission to the Father. That this one who is in himself fully God by himself, but not, sorry, in himself, but not by himself, that this one who has eternally been in the community with the Father and the Spirit is so submissive, is so lovingly respectful of the Father's will that knowing the Father's purpose and knowing all about everything equal in knowledge with the Father and the Spirit, completely, remember, equal in the Trinity, 
he in his submittedness takes on the form of a man, the incarnation, and is born, remember, conceived in Mary and is born, knowing precisely what would happen. But his love for the Father's purpose is such that he will lower himself to the lowest place and experience the worst in order that the Father's purpose may be achieved. Remember Philippians 2, the whole verse is 6 through 11. Now, what was the purpose of the Son's submission? Why did he do this? John 4, 34, and several other verses. I'll just read through them. Jesus is speaking. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In 5.30, I, seek my, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 6.38, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, he's repeating himself. 14.31, I do exactly what my father has commanded. 15.10, if you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commandments, and I remain in his love. So what is the Father's will that Jesus is to fulfill? What, does God's pur- what was God's purpose for Jesus to become incarnate, enfleshed? Luke 19.10, remember, the Son of Man has come, what? To seek and to save the lost. Now, why? Why did he come to seek and to save us? Because God in the beginning said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And in order to fulfill that purpose, he creates humanity. But you remember in Genesis 3, 6, the woman particularly the fruit and the man ate it and sin came in the world and the fall. And so no longer was man able to fulfill the purpose of God's creational intent. And so God must send someone to rectify to fulfill that intent as a man. So God's purpose will be established and will be fulfilled. So as Adam failed, God must send another man. A man failed to be the image of God, but God's purpose cannot be overthrown. And if God allows that, then his purpose has failed. Therefore, he cannot because he has purpose to do it, he cannot undo what he's purposed to do and maintain his own truthful integrity. So he must send another man who will fulfill his Genesis 1:26 purpose. And in that man, all of the purpose of God is not only collected and fulfilled, but because of that man, now God can now put into that man all of his people whom he has foreknown. And in that man, in that Messiah, in the Son who has come as the incarnate Son, now all of God's people can be collected and can be seen by God as having fulfilled God's purpose and who are now the image bearers of this eternal God. This is called the church. So Jesus came in to seek what? The lost. And to save the lost. Why? So we could become the fulfillment of God's eternal creative purpose so that God can be glorified. 
So the son's submission to the father's will is the very reason for our salvation. We are here because the son came as the obedient son. Matthew 26, 42. My father, if it is not possible, remember in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling. Jesus, the man, Jesus is wrestling against the horror, against the hideous Thing that is coming against him against the terror that is gripping his heart in the garden of Eden this man is being overwhelmed with the terror that is facing him what terror the terror of the cross physically yes a little bit but the great terror of for the first time for the first time experiencing non-fellowship with the father experiencing what it would be and what it is to sin not himself to be sinning but to experience what it is as he carries our sin and experiences what that sin has done to us and has done to our relationship with God and has done to God's love a purpose rather for us and he is quaking under this and he says father if there's any other way if there's any other way, remember three hours of prayer. Father, let this cup pass from me. But remember, this is the incarnate Son of God who is the loving, respectful, submitted Son. And then how does he close every petition? Nevertheless, Father, what? Not what I want, but yours be done. You see, the world is going to say to us, this is the way. This is how you have fun. This is where you need to go. This is how you need to dress. This is how you need to talk. This is what you need to eat and drink, and et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to say, it's okay. It doesn't matter. And the great failing that we have among us is that we don't go to God and ask him if it's okay. And we don't wrestle against what the world says and our flesh says, and we give in to these things. But thankfully, the Son of God wrestled successfully against this. And so he goes to the cross. And to what extent did the Son submit to the Father's will? You see that again in Philippians 2.8. And being found in a human form, remember the incarnation, he, became, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This is what obedience <laughs> looks like this is what loving respectful obedience looks like you know i've met with a lot of people and and especially when there's a uh, husband and wife kind of contention or family contention of any type one person who is maybe being beat down by this wants to know how long how far should i go in submission and the the pattern if you would is what even unto death if God calls you to do that, even unto death. How long do I put up with this? Well, within the context of God's will, he has to let you know that. But at least ours is to be willing to what? Go all the way to death. Now, he may not allow that. He may not have decreed that. But ours is to be willing to say, Father, as a redeemed son in whom your son lives and in to whom I am being conformed, this one who is your image bearer upon the earth, who clearly and perfectly manifests loving, respectful submission, 
I will do the same thing. And however you call me and to whatever extent you call me to live this out, even unto death, Father, I will do it. Why? Because your glory and your honor and your worth is involved in the way I handle this situation. It has nothing to do with the other people. It has everything to do with me as a son of God, with you in relation to God. And we allow the context and the result of that to be worked out by God in the other people. Because we'll say typically, well, I'll do that if she or if he. No. We do it simply because God is worth it. Amen? Amen. The bottom line is this. Is our God worth this? We say yes today and we do say yes, but when the enemy strikes, that yes becomes a question. Yes today, yes, we get struck. Yes? You hear it? The yes is a statement, and I think we all would say yes today. But then when the difficulty comes, what happens to the statement? It becomes a what? A question. Yes? Yes? Hath God said? Hath God said? But this son who was in the garden saying, yes, are you sure? But then he said, nevertheless, my question of yes will end with what? A statement of what? Yes. Yes. So question all you want, understanding and trying to discern the will of God. But at the end of the day, end of the conversation or the decision with a what? Yes. Yes. See, the difficulty, people say it's hard, and it is difficult. What is it hard and difficult in relation to? Our flesh. That's where the difficulty is. You see, does that, then the question must be asked about the submission of the Son. Does this mean that the Son's submission to the Father began with the incarnation? Some teach that the Son of God became submitted to the Father at the incarnation. Well, the answer is no. It shows that the Son has always been in submission to the Father. Remember in John 3, 16, what does it say? God loved us so much that he did what? God sent his only begotten Son. God sent his Son. So before Jesus, before the Son of God became incarnate, rather, not Jesus, before the Son of God became incarnate in the humanity of Jesus, before the Son of God became a man, the Father said, I'm sending you to take on the humanity of my people in order to put you to death at the cross for their sin. Right? You see that in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And the Son of God who is at this point not incarnate but still in the eternal community of God before the incarnation has to say what? Yes. You see, his yes occurred before the incarnation, which allowed for the incarnation. So this is the eternal revelation of the character and the nature of the Godhead. You see, the eternal son, remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And verse 14, what? And the Word became incarnate 
flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the eternal Son submitted to the Father's eternal will to become incarnate for the purpose of carrying out the creative purpose of God. He had to do it before he became incarnate. So this means that the Son was in submission to the Father's will from eternity past in order to be sent. So does the Son's submission continue after the resurrection? So we've seen that the Son is eternally in submission. Remember in Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ, what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And actually, I'm, I think I have that quote somewhere else, but I kind of jumped myself. But that's okay. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. There is no and has never been and will never be no change within the relationship function of God. There will never be a change within the functional relationship and roles and community with God. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, what? I am Yahweh, what? I do not change. There is a static or a sameness about God. He is as he has always been, as he always will be. This truth is accentuated. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read this a couple of weeks ago. And when Paul says, then comes the end when, what? The Son will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. After the resurrection, remember Jesus ascends into the heavens. And he is what? Exalted and crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is given authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. When he says that, before that ascension, he has already been crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. He does not ascend at that point in order to become the Lord of creation. He ascends because he is the Lord of creation. <clears throat> and as the Lord of creation, remember, he says, go and make disciples. Go. I am now been crowned king of kings and lord of lords but he is king of kings and lord of lords and the ruler over all the heavens and the earth for the purpose of bringing about the consummation of the father's purpose the consummation of the ages so when the end comes and the lord jesus returns to establish his kingdom in a visible and real new earth in which the heavens heaven and the earth come together in one then at that point the Lord Jesus himself being crowned King of kings and Lord of lords will then turn to the Father and submit to the Father's will and then hand it all over to God the Father. The eternal Son of God has always been in loving, respectful submission. He was in loving, respectful submission as the incarnate Son and as the loving, respectful, submitted eternal son the eternal god man the son of man eternally incarnate he will then at that time return the kingdom if you would or acknowledge that this is all of you for you from you and to you be the glory that's how this happens this means that the submission of the son is part of the very nature of the one being of god it's part of his very nature who never changes. Remember Hebrews 13, 8, I just quoted it. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, when is that? The eternity past. Today, when is that? During the incarnation. Remember the man Jesus. And forever. 
That's the eternal incarnation. When Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what the apostle is saying in that particular letter. Now, the son's relationship to the spirit. So we've seen it, the relationship of the son to the father. Now, let's look at this. The son not only humbled himself to become a man, but in doing so, he also placed himself under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, beginning with his birth by the spirit. And so the son in the eternal trinity is submitted to the father And as we'll find out next week, the Spirit is submitted to the Son and to the Father. But during the incarnation, the submission of the Son is now also to the Spirit. And so for the purpose of the incarnation and for the purpose of God achieving his uh, 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 purpose in this risen, um, in this incarnate man, his Son, the incarnate man, for the purpose of achieving that, the Son of God submits himself lovingly and respectfully submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So he's not only submitted to God the Father, but during the incarnation he submitted to the Spirit. Remember in Matthew 1.18, and Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So how does he submit to the Spirit? He allows in this mystical way that we will never understand The Son of God allows himself to be conceived and to grow in the womb of Mary and nine months later to be born in the form of this little child whom we call Jesus. And in doing this, he is submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit, to the Father's will and to the work of the Spirit in applying the Father's will that the Son to which the Son has submitted. Now, applying that will by the Spirit. This is what we see in the incarnation. Then the ministry of the incarnate son. Remember the ministry of Jesus Christ. Continues as Jesus is, remember, anointed and empowered by the Spirit at his baptism. You remember that. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And so Jesus begins the whole entire ministry by bringing himself Uh, by coming to the Jordan and submitting himself to the Father's will by being baptized as a figure or as a type or as an announcement of what he will do. He will go into the depth of death and come out again in the resurrection having forgiven our sin. Therefore, this is a picture of what God will do not only in him but will do in us who are in him. And when he comes back out showing in the Jordan, Showing in the Jordan, Father, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you want me to do. I present myself to you for it. I show it by my willingness, by going into the water and coming back out of the water. Remember when John the Baptist baptizes him? And when that happens, when the Father sees that Jesus is submitted, that Jesus is the submitted and obedient Son, he knows it, but when it's visibly manifested, then the Father sends the Holy Spirit upon Jesus to anoint him. Remember, we talked about the anointing of the priest, preparing him for the consecration of the priest, preparing him for the priesthood ministry. Then Jesus is anointed and empowered by the Spirit to begin the ministry that God has given him to do as the submitted Son. 
and as a submitted son to the Father's will. Now he will spend the next three or so years walking and ministering, speaking and doing according to the leadership of the Spirit in him, not according to him taking up his own divine prerogatives as the Son and living according to who I am as the Son, but living as a man, totally and completely and continually, always dependent upon the leading and the ministry, the discernment, the empowerment, the revelation of the Holy Spirit in him. What does that say about us? That's how we are to live. That's how we are to live. Following his baptism, remember the incarnate Son of God began to fulfill the, the prophecy of Isaiah. Remember that Isaiah prophecy? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, who is Jesse? The father of whom? Of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And so after his baptism, you remember, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He faced Satan and overcame Satan's temptations by the Spirit. And after he leaves the uh, wilderness in verse 14 of Luke 4, he comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he enters the synagogue, remember, and for that purpose, he enters the synagogue in Capernaum and states his purpose and gives his purpose statement by reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he says in this, he quotes from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember, he says that. In Luke, 4, uh, in Luke 4, 18 and 19. But how is he going to do all this? How does Jesus accomplish what he accomplishes? He accomplishes it through his loving, respectful submission, obedience. There is nothing that is accomplished as to God's purpose. May I repeat that? There is nothing accomplished positively of God's purpose apart from our, what are they? Loving, respectful submission. That's how God saves us, and that's how he grows us, and that's how he conforms us. And that is what is meant by being in the image of God. Why? Why is it so significant? <clears throat> because it is a manifestation of the way God is in himself, of the distinct divine persons who relate to one another through their roles, the Father being the authoritative source, the Son being the loving, respectful, submitted Son, and the Holy Spirit being the loving, respectful, submitted Spirit. Why do I keep repeating it? So hopefully when you leave here today, you remember, oh, loving, respectful, obedient. It's just a didactic tool, you know, the repetition, repetition, so you kind of get it. And so next week if I gave a test, half the, oh, no, no, I never heard of that before. <laughs> Don't talk about that, Chris. That's too much, yeah. You see, then for the next several years of his ministry, the incarnate son ministers by submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, even though the incarnate son was fully God in himself, 
he chose to empty himself not of his godness but of the use and dependency upon his divine prerogatives and powers he emptied himself and he became as a man living completely lovingly respectfully submitted to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so when we see Jesus ministering we see him as the divine incarnate son in the humanity of Jesus ministering by the spirit. This is not the son's divine prerogatives and powers overtaking and commanding this man. It is the divine incarnate son submitting and humbling himself and refusing to use his own divine prerogatives within the situation and letting the Holy Spirit come in and do the work of ministry, of revelation, and of power. So when we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, what do we see? We are seeing the evidence of a loving, respectful, submitted son to the Father's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit in this man, Jesus, who raises Lazarus from the dead. And all of that, once again, points to and manifests the way God is in himself in the community of three distinct divine persons in their loving, respectful roles. That's what is going on in the church today as God is ministering to and through and among us. And even his submission to death. Jesus could not or and would not. Jesus could not or and would not go to death apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Hebrews 9.14 says. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God you see therefore this earthly ministry during his earthly ministry Jesus the incarnate son laid aside not only his divinity the use of his divinity but he was divine human and divine in one but he laid aside the use of that divinity in order to live as a dependent man submitted to the will of the father through the submission to his through his submission to the Holy Spirit so what is the role of the son during his heavenly incarnation? Remember, there is a, the son before the incarnation, the son during the incarnation is 30 years or so, 33 years or so. And then there is the eternal or heavenly incarnation because once Jesus, once the son is incarnate in the inception or conception in Mary, he remains incarnate forever. He remains incarnate forever. When he is conceived in the womb of Mary, he begins the eternal life as a man and God together in one, in such a unity that we can't even begin to describe. And that is the definition of Emmanuel, God with us. And in that unity of the divine and the human, we are then brought into the fellowship of that union. And because of that union, we now have eternal fellowship with God. Amen? That's why. That's what Emmanuel means. And so now there is a heavenly man 
a man who was fully God and fully man. I'm, I'm sorry, a man who was fully God and human at the same time. We have a man now governing the universe and who will govern it and reign and rule until he has put every enemy under his feet. And at that point when it's all consumed and completed, he will return this cosmos, this newly created cosmos that he has recreated, having been the creator in the beginning, let, us, let there be light. Now is the, re, re, uh, is the creator of the new creation. Then he will return it to the Father for the Father's glory. So now that the Son has risen, his relationship to the Spirit reverts to what it was before the incarnation. He goes before the Father. And he is before the Father as the eternally submitted God-man. After his resurrection and exaltation, the risen, ruling, and I might say returning Jesus, the eternally incarnate Son, what does he do? After he is given all authority and power, he then sends the Holy Spirit to apply the fulfillment, I'm sorry, the to apply what he has fulfilled at the cross. It is finished, remember John 19, 30. And he sends the Holy Spirit to apply that or make it good in his people. And when do we see that beginning? Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is the day in history when God's eternal purpose, having been procured by the Son's death and resurrection, now through the authority of the Son, the Son giving now the Spirit authority, now the Son of, I'm sorry, the Spirit of God comes upon the earth and begins to bring about the manifestation in the people of God, what he has accomplished in the Son of God. And how are we to live? In the same way, loving, respectful submission to God and letting that loving, respectful submission and that community of love to be worked out and manifested within the relationships of the church. Next week, we'll talk about the role of the Spirit.